0: Hey everybody, Laszlo Montgomery again. Thanks for coming back for part two of this overview of the life of William Mesney. I left you hanging last episode in the year 1877. Mesney is back in Guizhou working at the arsenal, but once again, the Rolling Stone in Mesney made him jump at an offer that came suddenly from the famous explorer, adventurer, Captain William Gill. Gill had come to China in 1876 as part of the Royal Engineers to explore various parts of China. For the western portion of his expedition, he was hooked up with Mesney, who, by all accounts, seemed the perfect guide. From June to November 1877, Mesney and Gill took a trek to Burma through Sichuan and easternmost Tibet. Gill wrote about this amazing walk through the Himalayas that he and Mesny took with their team of five dozen others plus pack animals. The whole dang adventure was narrated in detail in a book Gil published called The River of Golden Sand, probably in honor of the Jinsha River where the Yangtze is said to originate. I'm going to feature that book one day in a future China Vintage Hour episode. Let me say again, I'd really like to recommend David Leffman's book because he's a very good travel writer with many travel guides published. In this examination of the life of William Mesney, I'm merely giving you the bullet points to offer an appreciation of some of the kinds of people who gravitated towards China during this half century of Chinese history. David Leffman really gives you an appreciation of the challenges Mesni faced. I'll never complain again about my petty difficulties getting around China. This really was a celebrated expedition and Gill was lauded for his achievements. And in his book, he hardly even mentioned Mesney's name even though he was an integral part of this whole 6-month trip. He didn't have much to say about Mesney in his book, but he sure gave an airfall in his private diaries. This Diary entry by Gill gives a nice, candid peek at Mesny that maybe provides insight into possible reasons for his bad luck streak. Let me give you one juicy quote. Mesny is an exceedingly fat man and a fearful talker who seems unable to keep his tongue quiet a moment. He told me his whole story in half an hour. He regularly wears his heart on his coat sleeve. He was not in our army, as I suppose, but began life on board ships. He had a taste for mechanics, and used to carry a few tools about with him. He was taken prisoner by the Tai Pings, who treated him very well, and insisted on his repairing a musket one day, which he accomplished, and since then he has so improved his knowledge and skill that he has been in charge of an arsenal, and not only that, but acted as musketry and artillery drill instructor. He has always been well paid, but he told me that all his savings were in Honduras and Turkish bonds, the value of which has recently collapsed. "'Mesney was never lucky with investments. "'When he first heard from me, "'I only wrote to say that I was thinking of traveling "'and would like to hear from him "'whether it would suit him to accompany me "'if I should feel inclined to make use of his services. "'He was disputing a claim with the Chinese for five thousand taels. He at once resigned his first appointment, wrote to the British legation at Peking that he was coming with me, sent a lot of muskets, pieces of copper, and stones of many kinds that were his own private property to the arsenal, and asked the Chinese government to pay him for them, but came away without even a promise from them that they would do this, and left two or three houses that he had bought as speculation in Guiyang, with no one to look after them, and all this because he is fond of traveling." He has sent a lot of tea and satin to England, but lost 50% on the value, and found out afterwards that he might have sold the goods in the province of Shandong at a profit of 100%. He is not a likely man to make a fortune amongst the Chinese. He has a round face, black hair, mustache, and dresses moitié européen a motier chinoise. Can apparently eat anything, for on arrival here he was hungry. I had nothing to offer him but these beastly sugared cakes, which he enjoyed, however thoroughly. He always lives a la chinoiserie, and for years has neither eaten European food or used knife or fork, end quote. This 1877 trek by Mesny and Gill was quite celebrated in its day. Mesny's birthplace, Jersey, even issued a postage stamp to commemorate the event. Gill received a medal from the Royal Geographical Society. From neglecting to mention Mesny's role in the expedition, and from the personal journal entry, Gill made it clear he felt he could have picked a better travel companion. Mesney was out of shape and was popping Holloway's pills the whole way. That was a popular medicine from Victorian times that claimed to cure any and all afflictions. Gill had further said of his traveling companion Mesney is by no means a good man of business. When he gets amongst his Chinese friends, he talks upon every topic except the one important one. He laughs and jokes and forgets all about the information we are all seeking. I never heard a man talk at such a pace as when he talks Chinese or French. I cannot judge for the Chinese, but the French he speaks so incredibly fast that neither the missionaries nor myself understood half, he says. English he does not jabber so much. I think he's afraid of making mistakes, and his English is not very good. He is rather rough on the aspirates. End quote. Wherever these two went, they would occasionally come upon French Catholic priests who tended their tiny flocks in these unforgiving mountainous regions. As they trekked west from Chengdu, they encountered Kampa nomads in that part of China where Sichuan and Tibet meet. You wouldn't want to be walking through these parts if you had acrophobia. And as they got closer to the Tibetan border, Gil and Mesni rubbed up against some very anti-Western Tibetan llamas. The work of the Western missionaries was already well-known around these parts, and the last thing these Buddhist priests wanted was foreigners waltzing into Tibet and proselytizing to the folk there and stealing business, so the welcome they received was often as frosty as the atmosphere at the 4,000 meter altitudes they were walking through. Crossing into Tibet and thinking about seeing Lhasa was right out. No chance of that in 1877. It was hard enough dealing with the Chinese in the treaty port areas, out here and the Rural, wide-open, empty spaces, one needed the patience of Job and unbelievable resourcefulness to survive on a day-to-day basis. Locals by now had figured out. Wherever foreigners went, trouble followed. So the two headed south towards Yunnan. The province was still in shambles, thanks to the Muslim war that had been over for four years. Not a pleasant time for China's Hui minority in Yunnan. The blowback and atrocities committed by the Qing government against the Muslims was terrible. Gill and Mesney made it to the border with Burma, where they finished their journey 40 miles into Burma across the Yunnan border in the city of Bamo. The great achievement of this expedition was finding and surveying the southwestern route from Chengdu to Burma, something the Royal Geographical Society would honor Captain William Gill with later on. As for Mesney, no medal for him, and like I said, no credit offered in Gill's best selling book on the journey. The two, after finishing up in Bamo, continued on to Mandalay and Rangoon, where they enjoyed the creature comforts of British society. They both sailed to Calcutta from there. Gill stayed, and Mesney went on to Britain. Gill was lauded, and his name lionized in certain circles. As for Mesney, He was referred to in the press at the time as, quote, a French gentleman in the Chinese service, end quote. So after an 18-year absence, Mesny arrived at the Port of Southampton on January 8, 1878. He took a ferry straight to Alderney, where he was reunited with his family. And like Tugan Moisha Cohn, who we featured in episodes 130 and 131, Mesny showered his family and friends with all the tchotchkes, gyu and souvenirs he accumulated over the years from Tibetan, Miao, and other minority people of the Southwest. And now, back to where he once belonged, Mesny set to work on leveraging his dozen and a half years in China to make some money. He had a ton of samples that he brought back with him from China and that he was determined to find buyers for. So he went to work hustling like he always did, but you know... He meant to create a big splash and show his wares at the Paris World's Fair, but he pulled into town weeks late and missed the show. He had to resort to private showings and doing the whole Willie Loman death of a salesman routine. Needless to say, despite the glowing prospects, there were no takers. I mean... Even me, who is so intimately familiar with this whole world of selling made-in-China stuff, I can't figure out with all those first-to-market items he must have brought back from Guizhou, Guangxi, Burma, and elsewhere. How could he have not met with any interest in Britain or anywhere on the continent? I think of what Gill said about Mesni privately in his journals, disrespecting his contribution to their groundbreaking expedition, his seeming... Mediocrity, despite the benefit of the past 18 years in China. Was he just not lucky? Or did he never play his cards right? So 1878 was a rude awakening for Mesni. Things, once again, didn't turn out like he thought they would. He stayed away for about a year before an opportunity to head back to China on someone else's dime appeared. On Boxing Day, 1878, he was back in Hong Kong. Both Chinese and Westerners sniggered at his appearance, a montage of both Chinese and Western garments and accessories. And if he stood before a whole audience or a single person, Mesni styled himself as General Mesni. Maybe this was where Moisha got that idea. From Hong Kong, he went to Guangzhou, but whatever he was trying to get cooking there didn't pan out either. So he hopped on board a vessel heading in a northwesterly direction and pointed his compass towards Guizhou province. And from 1879 to 1881, he was going to show Captain William Gill, who was boss. Mesni meticulously planned this four-year-long trek that would take him all throughout Xinjiang province, Central Asia, Tibet, and Vietnam. He thought, with all his titles and rank, that he'd be able to come and go throughout West China as he pleased. But Mesni got no respect. He had to stand in line and get the same documents and Chops is the next guy. Out in the provinces, the attitude of the officials from top to bottom ranged from mildly to rapidly xenophobic. Mesni may have thought with all his titles he was honorary Chinese, but as far as the locals were concerned, not the case. He was a foreigner, and all crows under heaven are black, as the old saying goes. He began his long journey in the traveler's paradise of Guangxi. It wasn't a very easy place to get around, and author David Lefman gives some priceless blow-by-blow accounts about all the small cities and towns Mesni passed through. If you go on Google Maps, those places mentioned by Mr. Lefman, most all of which I had never heard of, they exist. Still, it made me wonder how many people besides Mesni wandered out to these far-flung places back in the 19th century and didn't live to tell about it. Let me quote what Mesni said about Guangxi. It was, quote, extremely dirty and miserable, tumble-down like hovels, in which an English farmer would object to keep his cows and pigs, end quote. Yikes! When he came upon Guilin, sailing by houseboat up the Li River, arguably China's most scenic spot, the officials didn't welcome him there, and the natives were outright hostile. Not like today. He kept sailing towards Liuzhou, Rongchui, Rongan, and then to Danzhou, and around the town of Danzhou, and then the further west he sailed up the Rong River. The concentration of minority people became greater and greater. Miao, Yao, Dong, they were everywhere. His boat crossed over into Guizhou on July 5, 1879. Not much had been done to mop up from the Miao Rebellion. The province was still in devastation mode. Death was still visible everywhere he went. In August, Mesni was back home in Guiyang. Once he got settled and was reunited with his wife, he began to lobby any official who would see him. And when he had this FaceTime, he would discuss all his modernization schemes and his possible role as a consultant in making them happen. He was given everything he had to be a player, but Guizhou was a tough market. All the smart money was still on the East Coast. Investing in this part of China was just too risky, and in these times, too prone to ethnic rebellions. So anyways, Mesni had another big idea up his sleeve. As sort of an anchor project to add some value to this long China adventure he was planning, he was hoping for a meeting with Zhou Tang, some French associates somehow found Messany and made a deal to use him as their agent to approach General Zhou to discuss the matter of a loan from the French government. They wanted to discuss a loan with General Zhou, whereby all of China's various other loans to other lenders, all at different terms, would be consolidated at one single rate of 6.5%. Zhou Tang, if you remember, was the main guy fighting Jakob Beg and the Muslims up in northwest China. And now that that had been dealt with successfully, he was staring down Russia over lands in the Ili Valley that they were squatting on. So Mesni had assured these French financiers he could get FaceTime with General Zhou and could pitch him on the loan. In March 1880, Mesni pulled out of Guiyang, bound first for Chongqing. He traveled with an entourage of 30 that included staff, porters, and a military escort. He didn't even make it out of Guizhou, and his group was attacked by a xenophobic mob screaming for blood. He hightailed it back to Guiyang. And after picking himself up and dusting himself off, he took a different route and made it to Chongqing at the end of April, 1880. This was his first time back there since 1869. In Chongqing, Mesni set up shop for eight months, pitching everyone he could on infrastructural projects, mostly involving steam navigation and railroads. He tried his hand at a bunch of other things, but nothing that gave him any great profits. He also continued to write pieces for various journals, this time the China Mail based in Hong Kong. After eight months trying his luck in Chongqing, Mesni decided to Head north, try and hook up with Zhou Zhongtang and Xinjiang. Well, Mesni had one hell of an adventure. David Leffman's narrative provides a wonderful image of the lands and Shanxi, Gansu, and Xinjiang that Mesni passed through. He thought that he might run into General Zhou in Lanzhou, but they were ships passing in the night. The new governor base there showed zero interest in any loans, but... Mesni wasn't ready quite yet to give up on his search for General Zo. In April 1881, he reached General Tzor's former headquarters in Hami, now administered by Tzor's successor. He had much better luck with this person, and he seemed quite amenable to all of Mesni's ideas, as well as the terms for Mesni's compensation for the introduction and work in arranging things. Mesni was elated, no doubt, and remained in Hami for two months, no doubt, enjoying the melons and waiting for this person to take this matter of the French loans up with his superior, Zhou Zhongtang. Then, while Mesny was waiting for all this to happen, the Treaty of St. Petersburg, also known as the Treaty of Ili, was signed. Lands occupied by Russia since the Dungan Revolt were given back to China in return for the mineral rights that were going to be used as collateral for the French loans. With peace made between Russia and China over this matter in Xinjiang, there was no need for war, or any of the weapons Mesni was going to procure for the Chinese. So in short, no need for these French loans anymore. Defeated, Mesni opted to resume his journey. His destination now was Zhirli province, a province set up in the Ming dynasty that... In Mesni's time comprised parts of Henan, Shandong, and Hebei, including Beijing and Tianjin. He was still hoping to bump into Zhou Zongtang, or anyone for that matter who could offer him some gainful and lucrative employment. So, mid-July 1881, he started heading east via Qinghai, Gansu, and Ningxia before entering the China heartland. He followed the Yellow River and stopped at all the ancient cities east and west of Luoyang. He also stopped at the Shaolin Temple and described the place as, quote, a monastery of 40 monks, famous for their skill in fencing and for the good table they keep, quote. By the end of November 1881, Mesni caught a bad break on his way to Taiyuan in Shanxi. Someone surreptitiously relieved him of a bag full of precious gems he was looking to sell, as well as 650 pages of journal entries, and no cloud or backup hard drives in 1881, so anyone who ever lost years of hard work due to a corrupt file or losing a device knows what Mesni must have felt like. Mesni made a lot of noise and complained to the authorities demanding compensation, but there was none to be had. He got ripped off and had to chalk that experience up to his bad luck. January 9th, 1882, Mesni pulled out of Shanxi and began heading towards Beijing. He was now 40 years old and still chasing that golden ring, still looking to make his indelible mark in China and in the world. En route to Beijing, he stopped in the Zhili province capital of Baoding. Li Hongzhang was there at the time, serving as the viceroy of Zhili, and Mesni tried to get an audience with him to discuss his modernization and infrastructural plans out west. Li Hongzhang blew him off and wouldn't see him. So Mesni gave up and continued on to Beijing. Just southwest of the Qing dynasty capital in the city of Zhuozhou, Mesni ran into another of the great reforming leaders of the late Qing, Chang Zhidong. He was a scholar official who rose up the ranks and at that time had been very outspoken about Russian incursions into Chinese territory in Xinjiang and he had recently been made Shanxi governor. Mesny and Zhang Zheedong hit it off at once. Finally, William Mesny had some powerful and sympathetic airs to listen to his pitch about bringing modernization to the hinterlands in the western part of China. So much did Mesny make an impression that Zhang Zheedong offered him a position as a foreign advisor. After nothing panned out in Beijing or Tianjin, Mesny headed to Taiyuan to begin working for Zhang Zheedong. On the way, he stopped again in Baoding, and this time he was fortunate enough to meet with Li Hong Zhang. Though the viceroy of Zhirli was not terribly interested in Mesni's schemes, he jealously did not want to lose him to his rival, Zhang Dong, So he offered Mesni a position in his Huai army. And this Huai army would also be known as the Anhui army, and later would become the Beiyang army. The Beiyang army we will say for another day. Very important topic. But Mesni told the Viceroy, Thanks but no thanks, earning Li Hong Zhang's everlasting ire. This act of refusal to this giant in Chinese history will come back several years later and bite Mesni in the ass. Turning down at Li Hong Zhang's offer was a loss of face for the man. He would exact his revenge on Mesni later on and teach him a lesson not to turn down solid offers from people of his stature. So Mesni went on to Taiyuan and began working with Zhang Dong on his massive plans for reform in Shanxi province. Zhang was getting no small amount of resistance, no surprise there. Reformers throughout China in the 1880s were always fighting an uphill battle. Like he often did, Mesni continued to write dispatches for the English-language press, in this case, the China North Herald. When asked by Zhang Dong about ways to raise revenue in the province, Mesni had said coal and iron was the future. Shanxi was filled with both, and these natural resources could be developed. This, and many other ideas Mesni communicated to Zhang Dong coalesced into what Mesni called his 19-point plan for China's salvation. In this plan, Mesni was able to very well articulate what China's weaknesses were and how to address them. Later on, as perhaps one of the many final indignities, the dedicated reformer Junture Dong would, after Mesni moved on to the next thing, adopt almost the entirety of Mesni's 19-point plan, and no credit whatsoever would be given to the originator of the idea. Mesny, with nothing much else going on for him in Shanxi, left Taiyuan and arrived in Xi'an a few weeks later. Again, in David Leffman's book, he describes Mesny's journey wonderfully. I could only imagine the sights, sounds, and smells Mesny experienced along the way, traversing this millennia-old region in China. He spent the Christmas holiday of 1882 in Xi'an, enjoying the creature comforts that were never available in the vast spaces in between the major cities he traveled through. He was still traveling with quite a big group. Appearances had to be maintained. In 1882, this wasn't so expensive compared to today, but traveling with this kind of entourage wasn't cheap, but Mesny always coughed up the money. When it was time to move on, Mesny began heading south towards Yunnan. There was some action going on down there with the French, which... Considering his background meant there was perhaps something in it for him, so, in the dead of winter, William Mesney began yet another in a long line of harsh and unforgiving journeys, first passing through the Chinling Mountains, like he always did, he passed one historic site after another. The English newspapers printed the occasional article from Mesney, and there was no emailing your story to your editor back then. These were all handwritten dispatches that had to be passed on to others to pass on to others who got it to the North China Herald or any of these English-language papers of the day. He made it to Chengdu, stayed a while, and then moved on to his destination of Kunming, arriving there April 14th. The year was now 1883, and things were getting very hot and sweaty down in Vietnam. This is the year that the Treaty of Wei will be signed, which basically gave France total control over North and South Vietnam. But 71 years later, in 1954, the Vietnamese will kick him out. But when Mesni arrived on the scene, things were tense. The French had taken Saigon in 1857, and within a decade had a nice grip on the southern part of Vietnam. China wasn't happy about this because Vietnam had, for most of history, on and off, either been under China's thumb or at least China's influence. Now, with the French looking like they were fixing to stay a while, the powers up in Beijing started to feel alarmed. Li Hongzhang was called in to deal with the matter. China was looking to create a sort of buffer zone between themselves and the French in South Vietnam. The north of Vietnam was called Tongking or Dongjing, same characters for Tokyo. This part of the country was not controlled by France. Not yet, anyway. And China was looking to keep it that way. If the French infiltrated North Vietnam, the next thing you know, they'll be all over Guangxi, so there was a serious attempt to support Tongqing. In Tianjin, Li Hongjiang made a deal with the French, saying they could have the South, but China controlled the North. The French position was that all of Vietnam was a French protectorate, including the North, So here lie the sticking point. Both sides were pretty firm in their positions, too. And, of course, nobody asked the Vietnamese people what they wanted. It was looking like the gears of war were starting to turn. Mesni, a native French speaker growing up in the Channel Islands and all, thought he'd find some lucrative foreign advisor contract in Yunnan to help the Chinese deal with the French. But as it often happened, things didn't pan out for Mesni. Instead, he headed to Hong Kong via Guizhou and Guangxi. He had been on the road for four years already. He had gone native, as they say, appearing in public all the time in full Chinese dress, complete with the fake queue. The past four years had been filled with one crushing hardship and inconvenience after another, endless fighting with Chinese officials, insults, disappointments, near-death experiences on the road, and... No doubt some spectacular sightseeing. He wrote everything down about his track, and when he got to Hong Kong, he presented his work to the Hong Kong Chamber of Commerce, giving them first dibs on publishing rights. And they took a pass. So in late 1883, early 1884, Mesni started writing a book on everything that was going on between the Vietnamese and the French. The book was called Tong King, and it was published in 1884 in London and Hong Kong. By now, the French were helping themselves to whatever they wanted in Vietnam. China was still stamping their feet and making a lot of noise, but anyone who knows their Chinese history will remember the military in the 1880s was hardly what it is today. Every time the French forces faced down the Chinese, they just wiped the floor with them. May eleventh, eighteen 1884, the Tianjin Accord was signed, which put the French in the driver's seat down in Vietnam, and the Chinese got booted out, and their influence was almost shut off. The French were now on the Chinese border and helping themselves to all the trade they could possibly carry out with the border regions in Yunnan and Guangxi. Tongking was now a French protectorate, and there wasn't a damn thing China could do. Imagine how China felt in the 1880s, and the worst was still yet to come. Li Hongjiang gets a ton of slack for being the one who signed all those unequal treaties. This Tianjin Accord was another one of them. By February 1885, Chinese troops had all left Vietnam. Four months later, Li Hongjiang was forced to sign another follow-up treaty that formally recognized Hong Kong, North Vietnam, as a French protectorate. And down in Burma, the British did the same thing. Yeah, 1880s, fantastic decade for imperialism. Things weren't happening for William Mesny. After more than two decades trying to whore himself out as a foreign advisor to any general, warlord, viceroy, or regional power, he had, in his early 40s, come to the conclusion that he had to try a different tack. Now, when I say he gave it up, it's not like he totally gave it up. Throughout the 1860s and 70s, Mesny pitched any official who gave him an hour on the importance of building railroads. No one would give him the time of day. Railroads were, of course, being built, but nothing that Mesny was getting 2% of. But now, in the 1880s, railroads were a hot thing. So he did what he could to get in on some deals and to try and sell his services, but as usual, it didn't pull through due to the local politics of the day, or the enemy of us all sometimes. Poor timing. Mesni received an assignment from the North China Famine Relief Fund to write an investigative piece about the extent of the famine going on in Anhui. The directors of the fund had wrote about Mesni, quote, quote, this gentleman has an excellent reputation, and his high official rank, Chinese dress, and knowledge of the language will render him thoroughly acceptable to Chinese officials and people with whom he will be brought into contact. End quote. January eighteen eighty nine, Mesny went out and took a look see at what was going on in and around Hefei, and concluded about seven million people had perished, but famine relief was an operation and being carried out. He continued hustling here and there, always trying to appear useful in front of the authorities, but he was always the foreign expert no one needed at the time. And the funny thing is, the ideas and advice he was proffering whenever he had the air of someone influential, in time got implemented to one extent or another. But like the late Jacob Cohen, better known as Rodney Dangerfield, he couldn't get any respect he tried his hand at a number of investments in Shanghai, but they all had similar beginnings and endings. One of them, an ill-fated roller skating rink, opened in late 1890. It ended up getting destroyed in a typhoon, and pretty much all of Mesni's life savings were placed on that losing horse. Then the following year, in 1891, Mesni's name and reputation took a massive hit. There was this wannabe revolutionary named Charles Welsh Mason who was trying to stir up some anti qing trouble and got caught. I won't go into details. Mesney had unwittingly gotten mixed up with this guy but was not involved in any of these schemes that Mason was planning. But when Mason got caught and was investigated, Mesney had some of Mason's taint on his person. Even though he was cleared of any crime, the shares in William Mesney plummeted. Even his Chinese friends and associates, they put some distance between themselves and Mesni. The foreign community also sort of turned a cold shoulder. It was a terrible time for someone just about to turn 50, still looking for at least a modest return on his three decades invested in China. In late May 1892, Mesni was in Beijing. He was hoping to get an appointment to see Li Hongzhang like Sal and the Godfather, hoping for a chance, for old time's sake. He got his face time with Li Hong Zhang, and the old man just berated Mesni. It was time to pay him back for making him lose face for refusing his job offer and accepting the one from Zhang Zhe-dong instead. Furthermore, Li Hong Zhang had been made aware of Mesni's tangential involvement with Charles Welsh Mason, as well as several less-than-complimentary articles Mesni had written about the government. So once he had Mesni alone in a room, he just tore into him. He spoke plainly and directly, asking, How was it someone like Mesni, no apparent means of steady income, spoke Chinese fluently, had been here all these years? And what the hell did he have to show for himself? Well, needless to say, Mesni was getting about as much sympathy from Li Hong Zhang as Sale got from Michael Corleone. And when word got round that Li Hongjong had given Mesni a major dressing down, that was it. Whatever remaining friends and relationships Mesni had in the bureaucracy, they scattered. He was persona non grata, and whatever glimmer of hope that remained in Mesni's mind about receiving any foreign advisor consulting deals, flew right out the window. He was finished, broke, shunned. Now what was he supposed to do? By 1893, Mesni was even having trouble making rent. It was that bad. He had some property, but it had been long mortgaged. At wit's end, this is where Mesni's Chinese miscellany was born. The thing for which he is best known. And when I say best known, let me put quotation marks around those two words. I guess he figured, even with a truncated primary school education, he still wrote well. Since that... Fateful day in 1860 when he landed in Shanghai, he had seen a lot. William Mesney wasn't just another one of the Westerners who flooded into the Treaty Port areas, whose stories and variations of their stories we've all heard dozens of times before. No, the road Mesney traveled in China was the less traveled one. He mostly based himself in Guizhou, but all those western provinces, not so much Tibet. It was tough to get in there back when Mesni was trying. He went into a lot of the nooks and crannies of Yunnan, Guangxi, Gansu, Qinghai, Xinjiang, and Shanxi that most of us could only dream about seeing. A lot of the stuff he saw, structures, monuments, aren't even there anymore. So Mesni decided he'd write everything down. And thus, September 26th, 1895, Mesni's Chinese Miscellany, a textbook of notes on China and the Chinese, was launched. And under the section on notes on China and Chinese subjects, Mesni regurgitated to the best of his memory everything and everything he had observed and witnessed during the entirety of his travels throughout China in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. He also used the miscellany as a platform to air his views on all the issues of the day and to exercise his armchair historian skills. And Mesni, being Mesni and all, he couldn't help but puff himself up to be much larger than life. How to separate the fact from the fiction was impossible. Everyone knew of Mesni's years in China, mostly out in the West, so there was no reason to doubt what he said. He had a section in the magazine called The Life and Adventures of a British Pioneer in China. In this part of the miscellany, he serialized his autobiography and stories that probably wavered in between True and Pants on Fire. And the language that Mesne used in his writing wasn't that formal, stilted Victorian English. He used a very refreshing vernacular that wasn't as dry as the Other big journals of the day, the Chinese Review, and Dire Ball's Things Chinese. Mesney's Chinese miscellany sold for 30 cents a copy, or $10 for an annual subscription. His office was located on the Bund, where the Waldorf Astoria is today, at number two. The magazine was another in a long line of investments that didn't bring the returns Mesney was hoping for. Everything was introduced in piecemeal form. There was no chronological story. He just took his encyclopedic knowledge of China and put it out there. And like the China History Podcast, it came out sporadically and jumped around from topic to topic. In its final form, the work was contained in four bound volumes of about 500 pages each. If it had come out in today's online world, I guess you could call it a lot of Clickbait material. It came out over a period lasting from 1895 to 1905. Lots of long gaps in between publication. Some people loved it. A lot thought it was presented a little too haphazardly and didn't quite know what to make of it. It certainly was interesting. It was his lasting achievement, I guess you could say. And this is how he wrote his name into the record. I don't think he made it into the index of any of the important China history books. He's not particularly well-known. Even faux-China experts like myself have not heard of him. Mesny's Chinese miscellany, I guess, is known to what I'm estimating is a very tight circle of China specialists and lovers of antiquarian literature from this day. Mesni married his third wife in August 1898, Like the other two, she was Chinese. Even in 1890s, Shanghai mixed marriages were a kind of invitation to be snubbed by the international community. In any case, this marriage didn't last long, and whatever Mesni had accumulated by this time, he lost to this wife in the divorce. He continued to live in a modest apartment located on Sichuan Road. At the turn of the century, Mesni continued to see one Pet project after another that he had tried to sell to the authorities come to fruition in China. At least he knew his ideas were sound. Too bad no one took him up on it. The final volume of Mesny's Chinese Miscellany came out in 1905, and everyone who had faithfully read it up to this point all agreed the quality was slipping There wasn't much left for Mesny to say that he hadn't said already in the previous volumes. He was a man in his 60s whose body had taken a lot of hard knocks and put under who knows how much physical stress. It was too late to start anything new. I'm sure Mesny in 1905 felt very similar to some 60-year-olds today, unfamiliar with the changes and technologies that were causing the world to change so quickly. He made ends meet working for various foreign companies, mostly related to the insurance business. I'm not sure how he was viewed around town, on the streets and in the various establishments foreigners frequented. I'm sure he was a local character who not everyone knew, but certainly knew about and knew who he was when they saw him on the streets of Shanghai. In November 1914, World War I already kicked off, Mesni moved back to Hanko, he was offered a position at a local trading company there. The pay was good, and overall it could provide him with stable income in his remaining years. Despite all that hard living, Mesni made it to 77, dying on December 11, 1919, on what is today Huangxing Road, not far from the Hankou train station. He remained a happy-go-lucky man to the end. I'm sure in his final years, he had plenty of memories to reflect on. Memories that perhaps for one reason or another, he left out of the miscellany. He didn't die destitute or anything, but for someone who had the kind of chops he had, he didn't have the kind of ending that you'd think he should have had. I'm sure when Mesny first came to China back in the 1860s, he didn't think it'd end up like this. He was laid to rest in an international cemetery in Hanko, which is no longer there. Let me quote author David Lethman, who summed up William Mesny this way, quote, He left behind an impressive record of a long and active life in China, as an entrepreneur along the Yangtze, as a decorated war veteran, as a minor government official, a traveler, a plant collector, prospector, correspondent, arms dealer, advisor, observer, and ultimately as an author. He also became a unique witness to the terrible struggles that pulled the country apart during the closing years of the Qing Dynasty, the Taiping, Miao, and Muslim rebellions, the war over Tongking, and the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, and knew some of the period's most noble statesmen. His plans for the country's modernization were continually undermined by an unerring ability to shoot himself in the foot. His life... A long list of worthwhile official posts turned down, missed financial opportunities, and most of all, a lack of tact towards the patrons who might have helped him realize his schemes." Quote. Once again, I'd like to encourage anyone looking for a nice, easy, and entertaining read to check out the book that I base this podcast on, The Mercenary Mandarin, How a British Adventurer Became a General in Qing Dynasty, China. The author is Mr. David Lethman. It's published by Blacksmith Books, blacksmithbooks.com, if you want to check out their other titles. David Lethman has also written a bunch of travel guides for Australia, China, Indonesia, Iceland, and Hong Kong. He's written on a whole range of subjects, from crime to horse racing and history. He knows how to explain history, too. Great detail in the book that I didn't wander into for this episode. The book at times almost reads like a travel guide of China in the 19th century. Okay, I'm just going to release these two episodes at one time. This was meant to be a little Christmas present from me to you, but we'll just consider it a New Year's gift instead. Hope you enjoyed it. Hey, over the past six years, have I ever asked you, my beloved, talented, and good-looking listeners, to send me money? Write me comments on iTunes, or even lift a finger to do anything that might benefit me other than to listen to this humble and miserable little program. For everyone who asked me about the donate button and those who didn't, may I humbly ask one small thing of you. Why not take four minutes of your time to go to the CHP and iTunes and write me a positive review. Hit that five-star rating, show a little love, no obligation, just trying to see carrying out a little experiment see how many respond i know from all my download statistics that there's a lot of you out there so please do me a solid and give me that five star rating okay once again let me recommend john pomfret's book i mentioned last episode i finished it and also listened to the epic two-part Seneca podcast kaiser and jeremy had john pomfret on and it was a zhongmei fiesta like you cannot believe If you haven't heard it yet, wander over to SupChina.com and check it out. The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom. America and China from 1776 to the present. My highest possible recommendations. He was also on Mary Kay Magstead's excellent podcast, Whose Century Is It? So go check that out too. And I would be remiss if I didn't also highly recommend the Chinese Sayings podcast and the China Vintage Hour. Both are put out by the Teacup Media Empire, based in sunny and beautiful Southern California. Teacup.media. I put everything all in one place to make it easy for you. And more coming, too. Got an idea for a podcast? Call me, baby. Let's talk. This is Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from Los Angeles. You're welcome to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.